watchers in the fourth dimension. Would you look at these? You never told me you had these. A great hairy beastie. It's the doctor. One stroke of fortune will not save you. Hello and welcome to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And they came to get their ball back. Wow, that could literally be anything. This episode, we are discussing another mostly missing story, featuring some shenanigans in the Tibetan Himalayas involving a Lovecraftian alien and some robot yeti. Yep, it can only be the abominable snowman. Jumping straight into our story background, this one was written by writing duo Mervyn Hazeman and Henry Lincoln, who were both former actors who had met on the set of a show called No Hiding Place. Both wanted to pursue second careers as writers and decided to collaborate in this endeavour. Lincoln was actually a friend of Patrick Troughton's, and following a chance meeting between the two, Troughton lamented to Lincoln about a lack of Earthbound stories. With that firmly in mind, our intrepid writing duo decided to develop a story based on modern myths that they could submit to the production office. It was Hazeman who suggested using the Yeti, which producer Innes Loy absolutely loved, and he commissioned the two to write the story. Both Hazeman and Lincoln would continue to have long careers after Doctor Who, but it was Lincoln who eventually reached infamy for being one of the co-authors of The Holy Blood and The Holy Grail, which was the book that inspired Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code. Innes Lloyd saw this story as an opportunity to do a lot more location work, something he'd wanted to do for a while, and this resulted in the longest location shoot to date on the show, which was six consecutive days in Snowdonia National Park in North Wales. Unfortunately, this was done in September and the area suffered from very heavy rainfall during production, which really ensured that there would be absolutely no snow on the ground, which the director had really hoped would sell Snowdonia as a stand-in for the Himalayas. The ground was instead incredibly muddy and slippery, which caused a lot of problems for the actors, particularly those in the Yeti costumes who had a habit of slipping and falling over and tumbling down hillsides. Lloyd and story editor Peter Bryant absolutely loved what they saw with the Yeti, and as they were looking for another popular monster to replicate the success of both the Daleks and the Cybermen, they quickly commissioned Hazeman and Lincoln to write a sequel to this story, and the Great Intelligence and the Yeti will return later in Season 5 with the Web of Fear. Looking at the rest of our behind-the-scenes crew, we have the directorial debut on the show of Gerald Blake, he will return once more, but not for another 10 years, with season 15's The Invasion of Time. Outside of Doctor Who, he did the usual shows that all British people in the TV industry seem to work on at this time. Compact, The Newcomers, Out of the Unknown, etc, etc. There's probably Zed cars in there, you know how it goes. In the director's chair, we have Malcolm Middleton. This is his only contribution to the show, but... In addition to that usual circuit of British shows that I've already mentioned, he will later in his career find himself in film, working on such features as Angela's Ashes, Event Horizon, Interview with the Vampire, and Dinotopia. We also have a new costumer, Martin Bohr, who will be our regular costumer from now until season six's The Mind Robber. So we've previously had Daphne Dare and Sandra Reed. Now we've got Martin Bohr. Once again, we have no composer assigned to this story, with very little music being included at all. Anyway, that takes us to the end of our behind-the-scenes info, so we move on to our short summary, which is this time 
in the very capable hands of our very own Mr. Donathan Smith. <laughs> the doctor and company visit a Tibetan monastery to return a bell the doctor received from them in an unseen adventure, doubtlessly available from Big Finish. The monastery is under attack from Robot Yeti, controlled by an evil jello called the Great Intelligence, a name that one can only assume was given sarcastically, because this is a being that controlled the minds of other creatures, including, one would imagine, the actual Yeti that exists in this story. But instead, <laughs> opts for robot versions with an easily removable control ball in their chests. And he would have gotten away with it too, if it weren't for the meddling doctor and his companions. Special Yeti design consultant, Sir Mixalot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know don that was so wonderfully sarcastic and scathing i'm almost tempted to assign you to all stories from now on <laughs> you don't appreciate my singing or utilizing things from the episodes we would lose that that's a fair point mm -hmm. so episode one small bit of trivia this is the first episode of the serial <laughs> what are you sure i have it on good authority I'm going to skip the beginning bit because I think it's just a slightly stereotypical but good opening with Travers. But I want to talk about the Doctor and the Companions having yet another character moment in the TARDIS, and it's wonderful. Those are so good. I'm glad they've returned to that. I think it says a lot about the regulars at this time that they can really make it work and, and the rapport between them. I love the part with the bell. It's nicely labeled which just seemed really odd to me i really love the return of the chest which we haven't seen as far as i can remember since power of the daleks and jamie finds some bagpipes and he can fix them which is what the doctor was quote unquote afraid of even though that's why he brought jamie in in the first place <laughs> eh, changes his mind every week I think it would be a beautiful thing to see, and I think he should fix them, and he can play with the recorder, and it will be great. <laughs> we just need Victoria to do something with that bell, and we've got a little band going. <laughs> and I love that the doctor pulls out that big, giant fur coat, and he's like, ooh, this will be useful. I was about to bring that up, and in my notes, I described it as iconic in all caps with a space between each letter. <laughs> Like Instagram style. Let's talk about Victoria. She just starts messing with the TARDIS controls. What What's with that? It's not that different from what the Doctor does, really. Yeah, that's true. But, you know, they've just landed. It felt like kind of risky business to me. She seems to be really trying to be very active in this serial as a whole. I mean, when you think about it, so many of the events that take place happen outside or happen to the characters, our, our TARDIS crew, I mean. And Victoria is the one that's the most progressive and most active person out there until we get to the episode five. But until then, she's out of the TARDIS crew, the one that actually is trying to like stir things up and move the plot along, it feels like to me at least. That's very true. She's not passive. She's not just waiting to be captured. Right. I mean, the doctor spins, you know, really doesn't do much in the first two episodes other than walk up to the monastery and then be in the jail cell. That's very true. Although, to be honest, you can break down a lot of these episodes like that. Yeah, it's a common thing. Oftentimes in the beginning of episodes, it our crew lands, they find some sort of society or civilization, and the first thing they do is get arrested by them. 
I, I do believe in this serial, there might be one episode where someone isn't imprisoned in some way. <laughs> I think that's a big part of how stories operate. If you've got six episodes and you have to pad it out, you've got to add some character moments. So giving them a quiet moment in a jail cell to sit down and chat and, and build those characters is a fairly smart way of doing it. Think about it. You, especially in a lot of these situations, it's usually like the monastery. It's by itself. All of a sudden, three strangers come out of nowhere and there's bad things going on. Yeah, it makes sense. Most of the time, it does fit the story that they would be arrested because they come out of nowhere when bad things are happening. Holding a dead man's rucksack. Yeah. Travers is quick to accuse. That's because Travers has lost his mind. <laughs> he has a bit of a fixation on journalists. Doesn't he? And that just makes sense because, you know, that's your classic liberal lamestream media with their constant ridicule of Yeti believers. Fake news. Yeah, absolutely. Incidentally, Travers was played by Jack Watling, who was Debbie Watling's dad. Oh, I was just about to mention that, but you beat me to it. Sorry, Don. That's all right. Do you know how he got the job? By being an actor? <laughs> <laughs> Is there an actual story? I think she she suggested him. She kind of went to the production team and said, you know, we, we you could give my dad a job if you want. And they met with him and kind of thought, okay, yeah, you could work for this role. So yeah, it's, it was totally nepotism. I think in at least the first episode, I rather liked the fact that he was pretty unhinged. You could tell he'd been looking for Yeti for a long time. He's just had his, his partner that I don't think ever got a name killed. And he's just sort of losing it. <laughs> But in all fairness, how hinged are you if you're out hunting for Yeti? By yourself, middle of nowhere. Yeah, makes sense. To all you cryptozoologists out there, that was Riley <laughs> that made that comment. Exactly. You can email me at don.smith at gmail.com. I guarantee that will go to someone. <laughs> so anyway, I... Really like that they decided Jamie and Victoria needed to have a sibling type relationship. That's true. Yes. And that I think it's really fun. I prefer that to like some sort of romance. Every once in a while, you see Jamie being a little bit protective, but it's never in such a way that he's hitting on Victoria. It's very much a he just wants to be protective and he acts as if she's the little sister. It's quite different to the relationship between Ben and Polly or even Polly and Jamie. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I agree. I like that a lot. Definitely refreshing. So speaking of a scene that they're in together, what was everyone's first impression of the Yeti once it appeared on screen? My thought was I now understand where the McDonald's marketing team from the 70s got their idea for Grimace. It's like if Grimace was a furry, isn't it? I don't know what Grimace is because British... Oh, wow. <laughs> How long have oh, you been wow. in the States? Nearly 10 years. One of my things, though, is I like the Yeti, but I do think that they shouldn't have animated them for the reconstructions. Oh, God. So did I didn't ask the usual question. Did anyone do anything other than the loose cannon recon, or was that the standard all round? Yeah, loose cannon. That was the standard. Yeah. I'm going to read the book. I haven't yet. But I, too, went with the loose cannon in this case. That animation was just not good. Oh, yeah, they definitely shouldn't have done it at all. But otherwise, I think it's an interesting take because they're much fatter than I usually typically think of as Yeti. And they got weird hands. 
but since they're mechanical creatures, I'm going to assume that's just because they're robots. But they're based on the real Yeti, because we see a real one at the at the very end of the serial, and they have ch- they have like chicken feet. Yeah, they're they're just fat. They're fat versions of the real ones. They're chonkers. They're, they're the chonkers <laughs> of the Himalayas. <laughs> Honestly, though, I mean, outside of like you know mentioning their similarity to Grimace, I did not find them terrifying. I found them adorable. They were funny. Maybe it's because I have a very large cat. I don't know. Two, I believe, quote the same song I mentioned earlier. They, they've got a butt like a rapper's girlfriend. It was just ridiculous <laughs> when they came on screen. <laughs> They've they've got they've got a sickness for the thickness. <laughs> I mean, I, I have not seen a butt that big since the last time I went to Walmart. Wow. So the doctor's been taken prisoner, and Jamie and Victoria are in a cave, and a Yeti is about to attack them, which brings us into episode two. Yes. 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 Which we ride into on our segue. Let's talk about Jamie deliberately causing a cave-in to avoid the Yeti. I mean, he kind of got lucky in the end there, but that could have ended really badly. Had no other choice. I think his response was accurate. He, she was like, you can't do that. We'll be buried alive. And he's like, well, that's only a maybe. If we don't do that, we're attacked. Yeah, so he just went with the odds. Yeah. What was he doing putting one of those spheres in his bag? Did he literally not learn from Victoria and the Cybermat yet, the story before? He didn't see her do it. Yeah, he was separated. Uh, fair point. So no, he did not. I just couldn't believe. I was like, oh, we're watching this again? Come on, guys. I also was wondering the fact that it's like, oh, we're in the Himalayans. You should wear a jacket. And he puts on a raincoat. <laughs> that raincoat <laughs> is not going to keep you warm, Jamie. Have you seen this version of the Himalayas? It looks an awful lot like Snowdonia. <laughs> just a little bit, I suppose. It was just really funny. I mean, it matched the outfit, so it went with the kilt, so that was nice. But not going to keep you warm, buddy. No. Did anyone else laugh at Chrysong's sort of like witch test with the doctor? Uh, Tie him up to the door? Yeah, and if the Yeti don't (laughs) attack him, he's okay and we'll kill him. But if the Yeti kills him, we'll try to save (laughs) you. But at least then we'll know you're innocent. So, okay. Tie stone around his ankles and throw him in the lake. That's right. <laughs> I rather like Chrysong, though. He, he seemed very stressed out because no one ever listens to him. And anything he decides to do, they have to go and ask the abbot. Yeah. But at the end, he's, you know, winning the show. Yes. There's definitely a power struggle that's going on there. Because you have Chris on, who's trying to keep everyone safe and needs to make decisions, but he can't make any decisions on his own, and that must be very frustrating for him. Poor guy. And then there's uh, Thumbney. Aw, Thumbney. I spent five episodes until I saw his name written on the screen in the action closed caption. I spent five episodes believing his name was Tommy or Tony. <laughs> And I thought, I thought, like, Tony, that's a really, that's a strange name for Tibetan monk. Well, these are some surprisingly diverse Tibetan monks, considering their abbot looks like he's a white guy from middle management. But at least they didn't call one of them Tommy. <laughs> I mean, this, this was made in 1967. We have the height of the, well, we've had the summer of love by this point, And, you know, Buddhism was 
a big talking point at that time. So maybe he's just like a chill San Franciscan who's dropped out of society, man, and gone to live with the monks. I like that backstory. <laughs> that works. That's, that's, that sounds better than my thought of him being from New Jersey. Hey, Tommy, come over here. Come over here, help me meditate over here, all right? But speaking of him... I liked that they came up with a character to kind of act as that intermediary of trying to help the doctor, but still being who he's supposed to be in that society. So it was kind of nice to see that. I also liked his back and forth with Victoria. Yes. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about the great intelligent Yeti design with its big flaw? (laughs) (sighs) Let's talk about it. Well, it attacks the gate. And I I threw a net over it. Although I forgot to mention that great scene where Jamie says that he has a plan and the doctor grabs Victoria and runs away. It's so good. Uh, Discretion is the better part of valor. Victoria, we're running away. (sighs) So rude, but so funny. But then they capture this Yeti because it's, it's ball just falls out of its chest. Somehow no one notices, which was super impressive, but that to me seems like a bit of a design flaw. Just a bit. Secured only by a flap, I believe. Yes. Yeah. I'm no engineer or weird super dimensional space intelligence, but that just doesn't seem like good design to me. And I'm assuming that ball is not only just the controlling bit, but also the power bit. It, it seems to be the power, or at least it can't work without it. I viewed it as as the brain, I guess, because the balls would function independently. It was odd because I feel like if it's also a power source, how do you charge it? Can you charge it? Does it last have a limited time? Is that why they have a big pyramid of them? Sorry. Lots of questions. It also serves as a has Wi-Fi because that's how the great intelligence is able to move the chess pieces in order to move them. Which is a very interesting control mechanism. It does not seem terribly precise. Yeah, you're only limited to eight squares or like forward and ten across or so. I don't know. I haven't played chess in a while. I was watching and was thinking that the the great intelligence was playing Warhammer. (laughs) He needs to paint his miniatures. He would have won if only he had painted them. Speaking of, does anyone else feel like, obviously that it's cleared up later on, but at the beginning I noticed that the master of of the temple, the master of the monastery... At first, I was really confused about how he had severe mood swings until I realized that he was possessed. And we find out in the episode five because he sounds like a very like sweet, gentle priest doing a mass at the beginning and then just turns into an angry snake on the back half of the sentences. I appreciated him letting us know when he was being evil. Yes. (laughs) Often within the same sentence. I thought the very the very calm, sing-songy voice, I thought that sounded pretty creepy. It is a bit. It is a bit. I preferred this. Well, I say I preferred. I thought that the sing-songy was much more creepy than the angry voice. The angry voice and, and even the sing-songy voice, I often had difficulty understanding what he was saying. Oh, yeah. I, I had the transcripts up. So every mm. once in a while, I'd go to the transcripts just to make sure that I know what was said. I probably should have done that. The one one of my complaints about this was there were so many very calm, droney voices that occasionally it, it made me want to go to sleep. Damn those calming Buddhists. Right. 
I mean, combine that with the fact that whenever he would come give orders or give out his plans, he'd usually involve the, the monks in the monastery who all had Tibetan voices. So if you can't hear it really well and you're hearing Tibetan names, I mean, it gets very, you're right, it gets very confusing. Yeah. Do you think the difficulties hearing were due to the quality of the recording? Somewhat. The quality of the recording is not incredibly great. Also, I normally watch these wearing headphones, and I didn't this time. Mm. And I think that may have contributed to it. Yeah, that seems likely. For me, it was partially the recording, but also just the way things were said. Occasionally, there's things I can't keep track of, and the sing-songy, that kind of thing, can throw me a little bit more than some others. Still not as bad as the Cybermen, though. Mm. That's true. I just had a issue every time I was taking notes and he came, I wanted to write something about him. Writing Padmas and Bava is, it, it's long-winded. I, I just wrote P-Boy. I just did it phonetically and said Panda Salad Bar. <laughs> <laughs> you don't shorthand? Come on, like Victoria is not Victoria. Victoria is V. Yep. I don't have mm. time to write down full names. D-V-J. <laughs> I actually will write out doctor because I know the doctor doesn't like doc. <laughs> You know, I, I think we've already kind of moved into episode three because we talk about <laughs> seeing the chess pieces. And I don't think that actually happens until episode three. In the episode three. Yeah. The the great Yeti autopsy. Yeah. Because we had our big. There's not a lot that happens in this episode, to be honest. But we have our cliffhanger of where the sphere begins to move. Spooky. And then that. Well. I'm not quite sure whether it was a terrible resolution or not really a resolution at all, because there's a cliffhanger that wasn't exactly threatening. Yeah, it's better than some other things that I've seen, so I'm okay with it. And it's not a cliffhanger that leaves you like, oh, someone's going to get hurt or anything. It's the cliffhanger of, what are these things? That's fair. There's different types of cliffhangers, but the thing that I really enjoyed was that Victoria was really the one who figured out that the metal ball was important. Mm. Just throwing that out there. That was Victoria. And we spend most of the episode just waiting for the ball to get back to the Yeti. There are some great things that were said, though. Some of the monks, like the harsh words are like sharpened arrows. Oh, yeah. Oh, there were some excellent lines that the monks had. And that's why I have so many <laughs> marked. They were just have a way of speaking that is refreshing. You also get that very great line that Troughton delivered that Riley used for his quote in the beginning of they took their ball back <laughs> very deadpan that was awesome one thing I don't quite get in this story is even once it's become pretty obvious based on what we've seen of Padmas and Bava and the Abbot and a few of the other characters that Travers isn't really involved in these weird goings on the story doesn't quite let you shake that feeling that he might somehow be implicated. And I don't think it adds any suspense. For me, I was just thinking, why Why are they setting this up when he's so clearly not? It didn't make much sense to me. I didn't think that from a story perspective, the audience was supposed to suspect the Yeti. It was more that the monks were looking everywhere except within themselves for it. Oh, that makes sense. Because mm -hmm. if, if you do look at it from, from that perspective, of hey it, it still would be travers you're right it it doesn't follow through with that at all that just leaves you feeling very disappointed 
But I think, you know, when you put it like that, Don, you know, it, it kind of, it's a little bit of a commentary, particularly since Buddhist monks are meant to be a lot more introspective than the majority of us. So the fact they're looking everywhere except for within themselves, as you so aptly said, that's that's pretty cool, actually. Now you mention it, that makes a lot of sense, and I really like that. Oh, well, thank you. Well, it's also that interesting thing where you have that inner sanctum that no one's really allowed to go in, mm -hmm. and yet that kind of fits how some monks may be because like, there's something very sacred about that inner sanctum, so they don't really question why they're not allowed in there. And so I think that's why they don't really think to be introspective because the place that it's happening from is a place that they wouldn't even think, oh, well, I'm not going to think anything bad is happening in there. And they've also got, I mean, they've been there by themselves for a fairly long time and you suddenly have two groups of strangers that have just shown up. And from what I gathered for them, the Yeti are a real thing. They know them, that they exist, and they're very shy. And then all of a sudden, they're aggressive and killing people. So I can, I can see their thought process. Yeah, that makes sense. I definitely prefer your perception of the story in that case, Don, because as Anthony was saying, I had difficulty with the, what I felt was a lack of suspense or tension, because as the audience, I can see so clearly that why aren't they just looking towards the inner sanctum, the person making the weird speaking in weird voices and Travers isn't going to be involved with something that, you know, as an advance as a ball controlled Yeti. Why? What's the delay? So I guess that makes sense. And I don't think anyone except the Abbot was allowed back there. I may be wrong on that. People who did go back there, like Thumni, were hypnotized to not be able to remember that they were there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And this whole thing has been going on for, I mean, they said he had been designing the Yeti for 200 years. It took him 200 years to come up with that? Yes. That's pretty embarrassing. Once again, why not just hypnotize the real Yeti? <laughs> just saying. Maybe they can't hypnotize Yeti. They are mythical creatures. They might have special powers. But they're, they're real within the context of this. Yeah, but what I'm saying is, what if they actually physically cannot hypnotize them? What if they're immune to it? But they don't mention that. It's not in the story. <laughs> 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 it's a valid point. It is, but that's just not how they did it. And then Victoria goes under house arrest. So we have the doctor first jailed, and now Victoria is, is jailed. That happens in episode four, right? Uh, no, I have a note here that says V's under house arrest. Because I thought in at the end of three, she's going around and that's when the ball finally gets back to the Yeti and then it gets up like everyone knew it would. She goes under house arrest twice. That's a lot of being arrested. Yes. I told you there's only like one episode where someone's not <laughs> in prison for something. I thought you were about to say, I told you there's only one episode of story here. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's, as usual, about four, but I'm assuming those Yeti costumes and the sets were expensive, so you gotta, you gotta spread that out. Because this was when she was supposed to stay in that room, Thumbney was watching her, she gets out, she goes to the Inner Sanctum. She wasn't supposed to be doing all that. She was supposed to stay in her room. Damn it, V. <laughs> How dare you advance the plot. Don't you know we like long, drawn-out conversations with a guy that we can't see, <laughs> pronouncing names that we can't really understand? 
And as you guys continue to talk, the Yeti wakes up. Oh, no. Ah, episode four. And then bursts out. Or actually, someone let it out. Tommy let it out. And then Chrysong gets mad at him because he let the Yeti that would have been k- killing a bunch of people out of the game. Chrysong just... Poor guy. Like, he, he seems so out of his depth. But he at least does kind of admit it. Is it this episode? At one point, he basically admits that he's wrong and agrees to do it the doctor's way that's true it's almost ironic because he gets mad that people don't trust his judgment but he doesn't trust anyone else's judgment either yeah this episode does have one of my absolute favorite lines or or pieces of dialogue i should say and that's when jamie and the doctor are heading to the tardis and there's that yeti outside Mm -hmm. and Jamie asks, what are we going to do? And the doctor just goes, bung a rocket. <laughs> <laughs> and he does. Uh, it's the second doctor calling back here on the first doctor by using the first doctor's favorite tool, a rock. <laughs> <laughs> and it also just solidifies my love of the doctor and Jamie together and the banter that they have and just how ridiculous they can be. It's wonderful. I could watch an entire, entire six episode serial of them just standing at the TARDIS control talking back and forth. That would have been a, a way to do Doctor Who on the cheap. I wonder right? why they didn't think of that. <laughs> bottle episode. Extreme bottle episode. Yeah, six episodes yeah. worth. <laughs> so we've talked about Chrysong and his issues, but I have to mention another of the characters that we haven't mentioned yet. I think his name is is Rinchen. He's the door guard with, with a bad mustache. Yep. He is terrible at his job. <laughs> because everyone either hypnotizes him in the case of the abbot or victoria totally tricks him by acting like there was something wrong with her water and he leaves without locking the door <laughs> <laughs> yeah that that would not fly these days he is not meant for guard duty all i'm saying well again they're monks they're not used to having to be this guarded because usually they live in peace with the yeti Maybe that wasn't his original job. But they have a warrior class. Well, maybe he transferred. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Headcanon backstory accepted. We're trying our hardest with this, guys. I do want to throw in that the doctor used a screwdriver in this one. We're getting close. Mm -hmm. I will continue to point it out every time I see one. You're not going to have to do that much longer. Actually, a good thing to point out, because not only did he use a screwdriver, they were going back to the TARDIS for scanning equipment. If it was made today, it's it's just the sonic screwdriver. Yeah, that's true. That catch-all magic wand. Mm-hmm. Just to get the plot moving. Oh, another question I have about these weird metal balls. Were they designed to go back to the Yeti that they were in? Like, this homing... Thing. Like, how does that work? They're like a Roomba. <laughs> <laughs> they know where their Yeti host body is and they're programmed to return to it. But is it any Yeti body or do they have a specific one? I think they have a specific one, but if the dude tells them to, they can go to a different one. I am not an expert on this. There, I found there are very few situations where robot Yeti is the answer <laughs> to your problems. <laughs> But sometimes it is, and they'll realize it, and how dare they call me mad! (laughs) Anyway, Travers is back to being a lunatic. 
and and babbling <laughs> about the the pyramid and the the jello goop he saw. I really wish we could see that jello goop, that glutinous mass. Yeah. <laughs> I I just want to know how they realized that on screen. Did it actually look good or did it look kind of terrible? I would like to imagine the blob. Yep, that's what I'd like yep. to imagine. But I think it might not have been that good. That's why I'm imagining it. <laughs> <laughs> so i think we wrap up episode four when we finally get to meet and a salad bar in person yes or vicky does we have an old guy in questionable latex makeup that's funny because when i saw it i i was just really surprised by the mickey rourke cameo that they had there has got to get work somewhere apparently he found a time machine and went back to 1967 for work things have really got that bad for him so, I mean, that's that's our cliffhanger, which it, it is, while it's not great makeup, I did find it disturbing and creepy and kind of spooky. So it had some effect. I'm sure it looked just just fine when it was broadcast on an older TV. I'm just being a, a little bit snarky because you could see where it ended at his mouth. Yeah. I'm sure watching it on like a 10 inch TV in 1967 is a was a very different experience to watching it on a 55-inch flat screen. It would have totally worked. <laughs> they didn't need that level of detail. But here we have yet another episode where someone gets hypnotized. Someone gets hypnotized. They continue to call Victoria a she-devil. Yes, which I thought was pretty funny. <laughs> and Travers, after seeing his pyramid and all that, has come down with Lovecraftian protagonist disease. Yep. <laughs> the great intelligence in... Some of the expanded media was retconned into being an actual monster from the Lovecraft mythos. Because of course it was. Of course. Give me a second and I will tell you exactly which one. You don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> you could do without the clicking and just move on. <laughs> he hinted subtly. Okay. We can just move on. Never mind. It was retconned and badly and everyone wishes it hadn't been done. <laughs> we'll go with that. I think that happens a lot in Doctor Who extended media. <laughs> Let's just pretend yeah. that never happened. It's okay. One thing that is nice, though, is that after... Sorry, I'm moving on. Go ahead. <laughs> is after Travers comes back and then Victoria's still hypnotized, really, the monks stop blaming the Doctor and the companions. They're like, oh, no, you guys are innocent now. It's like, oh, it took us that long to convince you that we had nothing to do with this? Five episodes. Five episodes. Thanks, guys. But this is also where one of them, it was either Renshin or the one that kept calling Victoria She-Devil Sappin or whatever his name was. And probably my favorite bit of this where he gets crushed by the gigantic Buddha statue. That's pretty brutal. <laughs> really is. Watch out. Falling Buddha's next five miles. <laughs> <laughs> I have a question for you guys so this this season is known as the base under siege season because it comes back to that time and time again is this the first time we've literally had monsters besieging i guess the moon base although they they were already inside with the moon base at the beginning i don't know and the cybermen mm, they're already there anyway sorry carry on so i have a question and maybe i miss missed it is the great intelligence is basically saying that the world is coming to an end. And I'm really curious of how building these Yeti is going to end the world. <laughs> All right, I'll take a shot. 
<laughs> Please. I, I don't think the the building of the robot Yeti was going to be what ended the world. I think the coming of the great intelligence and his robot Yeti slaves <clears throat> was going to bring about an end of the world. Because I think the deal was he was supposed to stay within the cave, but then the abbot was like, now he says he's going to take over the entire mountain. And I think eventually he was going to take over the entire world. I'm so confused of why he needed the Yeti at all. I don't know. <laughs> he didn't have any hands. He was a big thing of Jello. He needed chickeny hands to pick stuff up. <laughs> I'm trying really hard here. I don't know. This is like my main problem with this whole serial is that I don't understand the end game. I don't understand what they were trying to accomplish. I know where you're coming from. My notes, <laughs> the handwritten notes actually say, what is the great intelligence plan? What does he want? What is his end game here? <laughs> to consume the world with his glutinous mass. That's that's what I've got going. I, I think he just likes Robot Yeti. And he had some guy spend 200 years building and designing them so his plan could come to fruition. Fine, if we wait 50 odd years, Stephen Moffat's going to retcon all of this anyway. So, you know, there's that. His other plan is to is take over the world is by endless meetings with underlings. Yeah. So I think we have the doctor and Victoria here, don't we? The doctor kind of unhypnotizing, hypnotizing her. Yes. And Jamie almost getting hypnotized by the unhypnotizing of Victoria. Uh, Jamie, Jamie, Jamie. And then we get the, the scene of the doctor telling the monks that the call is coming from inside the house. <laughs> Going back to the great intelligence for a second, Padmas and Bava made contact with him on. Did, did I hear it right? On the astral plane? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. So we're going into kind of transcendental meditation and shit here. Cool. Yeah. All right. Carry on. I actually liked that part. <laughs> I did too. No, no. I just wanted to make sure I got that correctly. <laughs> okay. I was like, did, did, did I hear that right? Okay. Cool. I did. All right. There was the dehypnotizing. Find out they're from in the monastery. And then as Travers starts remembering what he saw in the cave, just as we conveniently see the substance oozing out onto the mountainside. Cliffhanger. It was also a very abrupt cliffhanger. It was. It felt like it, sh it shouldn't have ended there. These last two episodes are very abrupt. They are very quick. It's we we develop our situation in the first episode. We get a little bit more of a continuation of the mystery in the second one. I don't know what the hell we're doing for the <laughs> back half of two or three or four. But then five, once the doctor figures out, we're already like racing to the door of the chamber. And we're like, all right, let's get this over with and let's go. It's it's just like the, the, the change of pace is just neck breaking. In the middle, we're waiting for a ball to roll to a Yeti. <laughs> And I just love that we, we go to this point of just pondering, looking around, investigating caves, looking at this, scared of the Yeti attack. And then episode six, the doctor is just like, all right, you, you, you. All right, we're just going to burst through this damn door and just run in here. <laughs> That's our plan. Our plan is to go in and break some stuff. Who's with me? <laughs> Sounds about right. That's, that is literally his plan. 
Which is kind of problematic because if only they would just, one of, of the monks would have said to the doctor in the, maybe the first or second episode, you know, the Master of Monastery is making a lot of weird noises and voices. It's like, well, let's go and investigate this. Episode two, boom. No, we don't. We wait until six. And then it's, that's our, our big, you know, climactic scene. Episode six. Episode six. <laughs> so Chris Song finally meets his end and he's finally an absolute damned hero. Killed by his own weapon. Let me hold that for you. I'm cool. <laughs> <laughs> but it kind of leads into Songston being exposed or the abbot being exposed. Yeah. What I'm really sad about is that we didn't get to see Jamie fighting. Yeah, he doesn't fight, does he? Well, we didn't get to see it. There was the, oh, the control oh. room battle scene where I spent most of it going, what's happening? What's going on? <laughs> Why is the doctor staring at him so intently? I, <laughs> I was like, it's a staring contest? What's going on? I would honestly watch an entire show of Jamie and Thomney just smashing stuff up. Absolute agents of destruction. Yeah, watch them tear everything apart, and then Jamie and the doctor go and chat some more. That's it. That's all I need. All you need, <sighs> really. All you need is fighting. Da 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 da. <laughs> I'm sad that we didn't get to see how they realized what I'm assuming was a model shot of the mountain covered in the, the goo that was the great intelligence. That felt very kind of Lovecraftian in concept. Yeah, I, I would like to see either how they realized it or if they animate this one, what that's going to look like. Well, rumor has it this is next for animation. Oh, wow. Oh. oh. But not till sometime next year. So maybe we'll come back and do a, a little bonus episode once we've got that. Who knows? We'll see. So it's really quick for them to just tear everything apart and end everything. That didn't take very long. <laughs> well, it, it kind of cracked me up because they, they smash stuff up and Jamie's like, why, why are the Yeti still coming? And eventually he figures it out and smashes the right thing. A, a pyramid. <laughs> yes, the pyramid. Which you would have thought you would have attacked that earlier. Yeah, they knew about a pyramid before. So pyramids were very common and it's a common theme in this whole thing. So yeah, you probably should have figured that out earlier. You do have two basic shapes here. You've got a sphere and you've got a pyramid. Go for it. But hey, Jamie saves the day. Yes, he does. And there are some things that happened there that I would really like to have seen. And firstly, that's Pat Masambava when he's getting shot at, just holding out his hand and grabbing the bullets. Yeah. Yeah, that'd been pretty cool. I mean, that's very kind of... It, it's cliched in 2020, but in 1967, it was probably something fairly new on screen. And I also wish we could have seen the disintegration of Padmas and Bava's body. Mm -hmm. Yes. I want to know how they did that. And I want to see the mountain explode. Yeah. Yeah. And you, your boy, Ralpachan, is the one who bangs the gong to summon the monks back. I never said he was my boy. <laughs> I've decided he's your boy. Your boy, what Ralphachan. I think I get to decide who's my boy. I love how the monks were like, uh, do you guys want to stick around for the rest of the get back? And they're like, no, we're going to go back. Nah, we're done. We're, we've had enough. Thanks. <laughs> Even Travers, who you would think now that the robot ones are gone, would be ready to continue his, his quest. Nope. Until he sees the real one. Yes. Yep. Yeah. There it is. Which the CGI loose cannon used was not particularly accurate because they just used the same model. Apparently, the way they were realized was the real ones were meant to be a lot skinnier. <gasps> <laughs> like actual Yeti? 
yeah, I guess all the bulk was um, from the machinery to keep them going. Okay, that's good to know. I like that. Did anyone catch that, at least on the, um, I don't know if this was out, was broadcast originally, but on the loose cannon reconstruction, at the very end, when Jamie is complaining about the cold and asks if they could go somewhere warmer next, do you notice that at the very end of the credits, it says, Doctor Who will be back with Doctor Who and the Ice Warriors. <laughs> <laughs> nice i did not but that's awesome and we get the doctor playing the recorder some more because he loves his recorder i mean it's basically aside from a few monks chanting the only music we get in this entire story yeah we didn't really touch upon it too much but i think this story would have benefited from a little bit more music i i kind of get what they were doing you know they were, they were trying to build up the atmosphere and having this being done on location and in kind of dark, dingy rooms in the the monastery. I think it was meant to be atmospheric in the visuals, and sadly, this one doesn't exist anymore, so that's taken away from us. And I, I think it's a similar problem almost to the smugglers in that aspect, in that so much of what they were doing was, was in the visuals. Yeah, and I think, though, with or without the visuals, I think some of the pieces with the hypnotizing and, and some of that other piece would probably still benefit from some music yeah absolutely i know what you're saying but all i'm hearing is they just didn't have money to get a composer <laughs> or to just use the backlog of stock music how about some dalek yeah. music <laughs> womp, 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 womp. okay so that takes us to the end of this story with that, we move into our scores this time around. So we will start with Riley. I really liked the premise of this serial. Tibetan spiritual leader gets possessed by evil entity on the astral plane. A mythical creature terrorizes and tension builds within a group of people tucked away in a remote location. It just isn't executed well at all. The plot leans on the often used crutch by the show of having the doctor jailed immediately upon getting to the setting for the story causing the momentum of the story to be hampered because the Doctor is sidelined from the action. The engine of the story is the machinations of the Great Intelligence, but his plan, as we discussed, takes incredibly long to put into place, and it's confusing. In Episode 5, when the Doctor begins to discover what is going on, the story then picks up its pace, but then heads into an incredibly quick conclusion. This indicates that the story was relying on suspense and mystery for its core, yet I didn't feel a sense of either. But hey, it's got fuzzy grimaces and creepy voice work, and that makes me happy. So I will give it six out of ten chrome balls from the movie Phantasm. <laughs> All right, I'm up next, and I don't know if you guys noticed, I've been pretty quiet by my standards this episode, and I think Don has used this to describe stories in the past. This one, I didn't hate it, I didn't love it, it's just kind of there for me. There are some kind of cool ideas, the great intelligence in particular, I mean, he comes back later this season and then again in Matt Smith's tenure. So there's clearly a hook there. Uh, I get what they were trying to do with the Yeti, but I think this one really does suffer from the fact that five out of the six episodes are missing and so much of what I think was probably the tension relied on the visuals. Equally, it loses a few points for some of the more dumb parts of plotting, such as the worst jailer ever. So <laughs> I'm going to give this one five mountains covered in Lovecraftian ooze out of 10. <laughs> Don, you are next. You son of a bitch, you took my metric. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. 
this is one of those serials that because of the way that we have to watch it through a recon or through the audio or even reading the novelization, I think depending on how you feel about that version is going to impact how much you enjoy it. I enjoyed, much like Riley said, a lot of the ideas here. I don't hate it, but I did spend a lot of time being confused by it. It almost feels like Julie was sort of summoning my feelings when she kept asking, but why Robot Yeti? I don't know. I still don't know. Maybe he explained it when he was talking all spooky, but I don't know. Because it sort of lulled me into a, a weird bit of sleep. Still, if someone told me this was one of their favorite stories, I can totally understand it. Also, if someone told me that they really hated it, I can understand that too. It, it sort of fits right in the middle. So I'm going to give it six and a half ironically named extra dimensional creatures out of 10. <laughs> and Julie. I think most of you guys have actually already spoken about the things that I would have to say. Predominantly, the first episode I really enjoyed. I really loved how they set everything up. But then it dragged real hard and it was people just being captured and put in a jail for weird random periods of time until, oh, all of a sudden they've escaped or they've been let free. And the odd change of pace didn't help things. And, you know, we've already discussed the they had no real plan because it made no sense. So I am going to give it five glowing pyramids out of ten. Okay, well, that gives us a story average of 5.63, which is our lowest of the Troughton era so far. I don't think it will be the lowest by the time we get to the end, but we will see. <laughs> well, we are once again just about out of time. We'll be back next time round when we are heading to the future where a warrior is frozen in the ice. I wonder what that could be, except Riley already spoiled that. So, for now, thank you very much for listening, as always, and have a good one. You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Riley Shrek, Julie Philippeck, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, Chonkers of the Himalayas, was recorded on Wednesday the 23rd of September 2020. In the meantime... All of our previous episodes are available on your favorite podcasting app. You can also interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Watches4D. And as a reminder, you can also email us at Watches4D at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and leave us a review or rating on your favorite podcasting app. All three of those things really do help the show. And remember, the real Yeti aren't quite so 